This is Medical Matters, Insights into Current Issues in Health and Halacha with Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman and Hannah Evenchen. Hello and welcome to Medical Matters, an Eden Center podcast. I'm Hannah Evenchen and I'm very honored to be having this conversation today with Dr. Galper-Grossman. The Eden Center works to strengthen Jewish women and family life and promote the spiritual, emotional, physical, and sexual health of women and couples using the mikvah as a primary vehicle to attain those goals. Sharon Galper-Grossman is a radiation oncologist and former faculty member of Harvard Medical School, where she also obtained a master's in public health. She is a graduate of the Morot Halacha program for women's advanced halachic learning at Matan HaSharon. She writes and lectures on women's health and halacha and teaches for Matan, Machon Pu'ah, and the Eden Center, where she is the director of community health programming. Today we will be discussing BRCA testing, when it should be done, who should be tested, and under what circumstances. Our previous podcast addressed the complex topic of prophylactic surgery for a woman who has tested positive for BRCA. It's a topic that's very important to America's Eden. The Balaniot are trained in this topic, and there have been educational evenings for the general public and for Madrichot Kalan Balaniot in English and in Hebrew on the topic of BRCA testing. Now that we know the life-saving benefits of prophylactic surgery, today we're gonna go one step back and look at the process of the testing itself. Sharon, I've read uh, things that you've written on this topic and you and I have discussed this topic before. And I understand that you yourself have undergone BRCA testing. I'm curious to understand why you did that. What made you choose to undergo BRCA testing? And um, if you can enlighten us on your decision on that matter, and maybe we'll start with some background. What is the BRCA mutation and what does it mean to be tested for BRCA? Well, Hannah, that is a very long, there's a very long answer to that question. Uh, so I think I'll just start with some the basics, which, uh, which is what is BRCA mutation? Um, B, the BRCA gene, suppresses cells from dividing uncontrollably and becoming cancerous. And so someone who carries the BRCA mutation no, is no longer able to prevent tumor cells from, um, from forming. And that means that they're at a higher risk of developing cancer. Ashkenazis are at higher risk of carrying mutation. About one in 40 Ashkenazi men and women carry the mutation, which is 10 times higher than the general population. There are certain Sephardi populations that are also at higher risk of carrying mutation. So those who emigrated from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, and can trace their lineage back to pre-1492 Spain and Portugal are at higher risk of carrying mutation. Men inherit the mutation with the same frequency as women, which is something that very few people know, uh, people typically aren't aware of. And so BRC mutation is responsible for 12% of breast cancers and 35% of ovarian cancers in the Jewish population. Exactly how much do these mutations increase the risk of developing cancer? Well, the, uh, for the average risk, a, a typical woman has 
a one in 12 chance of developing breast cancer during the course of her lifetime. Someone who carries the BRCA1 mutation, I should, I should state that there are, there's a BRCA1 mutation and a BRCA2 mutation. So women who carry the BRCA1 mutation have up to a 70% chance of developing breast cancer over the course of their lives. And those who carry a BRCA2 mutation have up to a 50% chance of developing breast cancer during the course of her lifetime. Average woman has a 1% risk of ovarian cancer, but someone who carries the BRCA1 mutation has a 30% chance. Someone with BRCA2 has a 20% chance. In men, uh, the BRCA mutation increases the risk of developing male breast cancer, which is quite rare, but uh, is increased in those who carry the mutation and also prostate cancer. So a man who carries the BRCA mutation can have up to a 30% chance risk of developing prostate cancer. If, if someone tests negative for BRCA mutation, does that mean that they do not have any uh, risk of developing those cancers? That's a really important question, Hannah. And uh, in fact, something that, that we, that we really need to clarify, which is someone who tests negative, the, the results of that, the meaning of that is just that they don't carry the mutation. Uh, they don't have, carry any of the mutations that were tested. And it may be that um, there are additional mutations that will be discovered that they might carry, or they may have only uh, been tested for some of the mutations and so we have to be very careful with how we understand a negative test result. Negative test result does not mean that you have a zero risk of developing cancer. Uh, it just means that you don't carry any of the mutations that were being tested. And so someone who tests negative still needs to go through all of the routine screening uh, tests that are recommended and to, and to be aware of additional mutations should they develop in the future. Uh, we did a day of genetic testing, BRCA testing at Matan HaSharon uh, in February 2020, just at the beginning of COVID. Hard to imagine that we actually all showed up at Matan together and crowded together and, and drew, had blood drawn and listened to Shiurim on the topic. Wow. And found inspiration. A different world. May we may we come back to it very quickly. Amen. Uh, but at that time, there were women who who had been tested many years ago for the BRCA test uh, for the BRCA mutation and had gotten a negative result and decided to test again because there were new mutations that had been uh, discovered in the interim. So a negative test is not is not uh, a, does not translate into no risk. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. It's really important to understand. If someone were to be tested and receive a positive result of the BRCA mutation, what does one do with that positive test result? So, so we talked about a, a, a negative test and what you do with a negative test. And the question is, what do you, the, the, the uh, next question is, what do you do with a positive test? And so a positive test result allows women to take steps uh, to significantly reduce the risk of developing cancer. So uh, for example, a woman who tests positive uh, will be eligible for MRIs and mammograms, uh, MRI of the breast and mammograms every, every year beginning at age 25. 
That is the age that surveillance is recommended to begin. She'll undergo blood tests and ultrasounds of the pelvis uh, for early detection of ovarian cancer. Again, the purpose of surveillance is to catch the cancer at an early stage, catch cancer of the breast, catch uh, cancer of the ovaries. The other option, other uh, intervention that she might be offered is medications to reduce her risk of developing cancer. So tamoxifen, which is often given uh, a hormonal pill that's given to women to reduce the chances of developing breast cancer, of having the cancer come back if they have breast cancer. And it can be given to help prevent a breast cancer in a BRCA carrier. Birth control pills uh, might also be recommended to help reduce the chances of ovarian cancer. But really the most effective uh, intervention that a woman can take after she tests positive for the BRC mutation is prophylactic surgery. Surgery, uh, surgical removal of her breasts or her ovaries prophylactically before they've developed cancer to reduce the chances of developing cancer. And these are surgeries, the surgeries that we talked about the last time that we, that we spoke, surgeries that the actress Angelina Jolie has had that she's made public, uh, that she's increased awareness for, and they, they can significantly reduce the chances of developing cancer. And they're probably the most effective step a woman can take after she's tested positive uh, for the BRCA mutation to reduce her chances of developing cancer. And so prophylactic mastectomy, removal of the breasts, reduces a woman's chances of developing breast cancer by 90%. And if it's done at a young age, can also increase her chances of surviving breast cancer, can increase her life expectancy. Prophylactic oophorectomy, removal of the ovaries, not only reduces a woman's chances of developing ovarian cancer, but also can reduce her chances of developing breast cancer. So that's a really uh, uh, doubly effective way of reducing her chances of cancer. And especially if the surgery is done before the age of 40, but it will put a woman into uh, premature menopause if she hasn't gone through menopause yet, which means that her, uh, her childbearing is over, she can't have any more children, which means that she'll now have to deal with hot flashes and all of the, uh, all of the um, things that go along with menopause, uh, vaginal atrophy, uh, and it can affect sexual function. Uh, and it will start to put her at slightly increased risk of heart disease and osteoporosis. Uh, and could, could affect her quality of life. Although from what we talked about last time, it appears that women who've had these surgeries uh, are quite happy with the surgery, despite, in spite of all of these potential downsides. And so when I was training uh, in, in residency, a woman who tested positive for the BRCA mutation uh, was not recommended to have, was not recommended for her to have the surgery because or removal of the ovaries because the medical community felt that while we were reducing the, this woman's chance of developing ovarian cancer, we were now introducing a whole new set of medical problems. And so we were just, we were trading ovarian cancer for heart disease and there was probably no net benefit. And we now know that that's not true, that uh, prophylactic uh, oophorectomy removal of the ovaries reduces the chances of, of dying of ovarian cancer by 95% and also 
reduces the chances of dying of any cause by 77%. So we know that, the, that overall there's a net benefit, a huge benefit to doing the surgeries and the benefit outweighs the risks. And again, as we, as we talked about uh, last time we met, there are halachic decisors or postgame who permit the surgery and some who even obligate uh, BRCA carriers to undergo the surgery. So those are the those are the reasons that someone would um, the, the the reason someone would undergo testing to obtain this information that allows women to take steps to dramatically improve their chances of survival. Uh, and I should add that even some women have told me, you know, do I really need to do testing? I know I'm not going to do the surgery. What is the point of doing testing if I'm not going to do the surgery? And so the answer to that is that. We now know that um, there's a benefit even to just doing surveillance. If you test positive, you'll now be eligible to do surveillance. And we know that women uh, who undergo surveillance and have their breast cancers detected on surveillance uh, after having already been discovered to carry the mutation are in a much better place than women who don't have testing, develop breast cancer, and are found to carry the mutation after they've been diagnosed with breast cancer. We know the women who had surveillance generally have earlier stage breast cancer, require less extensive surgery, are less likely to need chemotherapy, and seem to, and seem to have a much better prognosis overall. So there is a benefit to testing. There is a reason to do testing, even if you know you're not, you're not interested in surgery. And also, just because you're not interested in surgery today doesn't mean you might not consider it in the future. It's a process. It's a really long process to figure out, you know, what makes sense for you at what point in time. And, and I should also add that some women uh, who test positive might only choose to do one surgery. They might choose to do, have their ovaries removed and keep their breasts intact. Uh, or they might choose to have their breasts removed and keep their ovaries intact, which was the Angelina Jolie approach initially until she finished childbearing. Or they may decide to have both their ovaries and their breasts removed. And it's a very difficult personal decision. Uh, and some that, uh, an decision that, that many women evolve into, they grow into with time. Wow. Yeah, I definitely hear from what you're saying how how big of a decision it is. Um, like you said, some people might feel that they already know what they would or would not want to do with the information if they do find that they uh, test positive for the BRCA mutation. Uh, but what I'm what I'm understanding from you, Sharon, is that um, first of all, it gives you an upper hand medically. Um, I believe that we also discussed this in our previous podcast that that knowledge is power, that the more information we have, the more we use the resources and understand our bodies and what's going on, then we can make informed decisions. And even if it's a really challenging process and emotionally uh, challenging to deal with this topic, what I'm understanding from you is that you really encourage women to always have as much information as they can have about what's going on in their bodies. And then you take the steps forward and make the best decisions that you can make given your life circumstances, uh, the resources that you have and what you feel is right for you. But that getting that information, getting whatever medical information we can have about ourselves is always gonna be um, a better path to be on, to put ourselves on, uh, if I'm understanding what you were 
what you were saying, and therefore then we can proceed more accurately with surveillance. If you know you're undergoing surveillance and you know that you are a carrier of the BRCA mutation, that's gonna be different than undergoing surveillance that many women undergo without specifically knowing that they carry that mutation. Well, women who have not tested positive will uh, not undergo the same intensive surveillance as those tested positive. So testing positive is now, uh, now opens up a whole world of intensive surveillance that a typical woman does not, can't receive uh, and wouldn't be appropriate for her to receive. Right. Uh, and I think you said it very beautifully, Hannah, knowledge is power, knowledge is power. I believe that was the title of the Eden event that uh, took place last October in memory of Rabbanit Dr. Abigail Rock, Knowledge is Power. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very powerful evening and I think educated hopefully a lot of people on some very, very important topics about BRCA testing and prevention of breast cancer. Um, I also wanted to ask on the topic of testing, now that we've discussed the benefits of doing the testing, um, you discussed the Ashkenazi background and, and who might be prone to the mutation. What, how much is it important to weigh my personal family history? Um, if I know that people in my family have tested, what does that do to my decision to test? And what might that do to my children's decision to test? So um, uh, that family history used to be uh, the most important piece in uh, the question who should test. When I was training, really, when I was training, the mutation had just been discovered and testing was reserved just for women who were diagnosed with cancer uh, after a diagnosis. And at some point, the thinking evolved that testing really should be offered to women before a cancer diagnosis to allow them to take these steps to uh, re reduce their chances of developing cancer, to take control of their lives, to improve their survival. But testing was only offered to women with a family history. And three recent studies uh, have shown that if testing is limited to Ashkenazi women with a family history, a significant family history of breast and ovarian cancer, that policy will fail to identify 50% of those who carry the mutation, which is huge. That's, a, that's, that's really a huge failure in, in a testing policy. And so the most recent recommendation, both from international uh, medical organizations in, in the United States, and as well as the Israel Cancer Association is to offer testing to all Ashkenazi women, regardless of family history. And so while family history is, is important, it, uh, the recommendation now is to test regardless, in spite of family history, even for those who have a negative family history. And to test, so to test all Ashkenazi women. And, and the question is why? why? Why did family history, why does family history fail to capture all of those who might be BRCA carriers? And there's, so, there's several reasons. Um, family history is inaccurate, people don't know. Uh, families might not want to communicate. Families might not want to divulge due to concerns of discrimination or other personal reasons. Doctors do a terrible job of 
figuring out who should undergo testing. In the United States, only 19% of doctors knew who to send for testing. And in Israel, uh, the results were a little bit higher, about 35%. There's also a, a misperception, a dangerous misperception, that we don't need to pay attention to the father's family history, that we only need to focus on the mother's family history. And that's just incorrect. We, we inherit mutation with the same frequency from our father and our mothers. And so a father's family history is just as important as a mother's. Uh, and when, in, when, I, when I talk to the public, when I talk to Balaniyotam topic, I always present a family history and I show a family where the father has the mutation and the mother does not. And they have four children, two inherited the mutation from dad and two did not. And it's so important to pay attention to a father's history. Only about 30% of the general public is aware of that. And only 50% of doctors are aware of it. So there's several reasons family history doesn't capture everyone who carries the mutation. Um, and relying and, and testing the entire Ashkenazi population really reduces the need to rely on family history, which is fraught with so many inaccuracies. So uh, you asked who needs to, does someone with a family history need to test positive? The answer is yes, but not just someone with a family history, Ashkenazi without a family history all Ashkenazim. Sharon, from what age would you recommend that somebody be tested? So there are several options. We could test people in utero. We could test them in childhood, adolescence, before they get married, before the birth of their first child, 25, age 25, 30, 40, after they've completed childbearing, menopause. But the ideal age to begin testing uh, is between 25 and 30 years of age, because at that point, that's when the risks start to increase. They don't rot, they don't, the, the risks in childhood are uh, really uh, non almost non-existent. Um, and at that point, uh, many people have already gotten married. So the results are unlikely to affect Shiduchim, which is a very real issue. Uh, and, and also, that's the age at which uh, women begin to initiate surveillance for early detection of cancer. And it also allows women to um, plan their families with an eye to complete childbearing by the age of 40 to maximize the benefits of prophylactic surgery and to have the greatest, uh, greatest chance of reducing their chances of developing cancer. So the age is recommended age is 25, 30. Now, if you're past 25, 30, uh, that doesn't mean not to test, just means that the, if you had to choose the ideal age, the ideal age would be 25, 30. Mm -hmm. There's still okay. benefits to testing at an older age. Okay, that's important to know. Now that we've gotten so much uh, information about the medical side of BRCA testing, um, I'd like to ask you about the halachic side of the issue. Are there halachic issues surrounding BRCA testing? So, Chana, it's very interesting. There are halachic arguments that would argue in favor of testing, and there are halachic principles that would argue against uh, BRCA testing. So, arguing in favor of BRCA testing is the mitzvah, and you shall watch yourselves very well. 
and Rakisha Merlacha, beware and watch yourself very well. Uh, and the Rambam, who in Hilchot Deot, Perak Dalet Halacha Aleph, teaches us that maintaining a healthy and sound body is a God-chosen way, and it's impossible to understand or know God when one is sick. One must distance himself from things which destroy the body and accustom himself to things which are healthful and life-imparting. And he lists several interventions that one should take to promote health and, and uh, prevent disease. He says, you should not eat unless you're hungry or drink unless thirsty. You shouldn't delay going to the bathroom even one minute. But the moment you feel the need to urinate or defecate, you should rise immediately. And so a healthy body is a necessary condition for performing its vote and serving God. And the Rambam's list seems to be a broad list, a fluid list. And presumably, as more medical interventions uh, are discovered to have um, life-prolonging life benefits, uh, healthful benefits, they, would, they could be added to the Rambam's list. And so it would seem that testing, which allows women to take steps to prolong their lives, uh, and to live a healthier lifestyle, live a healthier life, would fall under the list of interventions that one has an obligation, religious obligation, a halachic obligation to pursue. But there are two halachic principles that potentially would argue against an obligation to undergo testing. And they are tamim tiyem Hashem elokecha, be perfect with God, which Rashi explains as walk before him wholeheartedly, Put your hope in him and do not attempt to investigate the future, but whatever it may be that comes upon you, accept it wholeheartedly. And so there are those who have argued that genetic testing is a form of soothsaying. It's a form of seeking the future uh, and, and maybe even analogous to fortune telling. And then there's also the halachic principle, Shomer Pateim Hashem, God protects the, the simple, which is articulated in several places in the Talmud. Uh, and it's a principle that justifies engaging in dangerous, risky behavior. Why am I allowed to cross the street? Shomer Pateim Hashem, God watches over me. Why is a woman allowed to become pregnant? Shomer Pateim Hashem, because God watches over her. And so one could potentially argue uh, perhaps I shouldn't undergo BRCA testing because God will watch over me. And so uh, the question is, how do we balance between these competing values? On the one hand, the obligation to promote our health and well-being uh, and the prohibition against soothsaying and this principle of God protects the simple. And, and how does this all play out when it comes to genetic testing? And so in the 1970s, Rav Moshe Feinstein in Igro Moshe, Evan HaEzer, Chelek Dalad, Siman Yud, addressed the question of Tay-Sachs testing, testing for Tay-Sachs uh, before marriage. And he actually ruled very strongly in favor of testing uh, and felt that since the test could be done very easily, someone who doesn't test is like closing his eyes to what's before him. And so he strongly advocated in favor of testing, rejected any possibility that testing was a form of soothsaying and, that, and did, not, uh, did not suggest that we rely on Shemir Pateim Hashem, the notion that God watches over the simple to protect us from Tay-Sachs. And, and this tshuva really gave birth to um, the current 
trend, which is not even a trend, the socially accepted practice of Tay-Sachs testing before marriage. And so it would seem that halacha would rule in favor of genetic testing, uh, and not only in favor, but strongly in favor. But we don't know. Uh, we can't really extrapolate from Rav Moshe's tshuva to, TESA, to BRCA because there are differences in the genes in terms of their transmission, their penetrance, and their prognosis. And also because we can't, we know, we haven't asked Rav Moshe uh, what his position would be on BRCA testing. However, in conversations that I had with uh, his son-in-law, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Tendler at Zatzal, he believed that uh, his father-in-law would have strongly endorsed, in fact, even obligated BRCA testing. Again, though, we, we can't know because we have not asked Rav Moshe Feinstein. Okay, so I understand that Rav Moshe had a strong opinion about Tay-Sachs testing. Are there post-scheme that have expressed opinions specifically about BRCA testing? So until very recently, there were very few postgame who had weighed in on BRCA testing. Rabbi Bleich in 2000 uh, suggested that uh, BRCA testing fell under the category of, fell under the mitzvah of Vinishmartem and probably uh, would have been included in the Rambam's list in Hilchotea, which, uh, we just, which I just um, uh, described, his list of healthful living. Uh, that, that, that that list was not an exhaustive list and that genetic testing, including testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2 would be halakhically mandated. Rabbi Willig in a 2008 uh, uh, YU symposium, Catching Cancer Before It Catches You, uh, came out very strongly in favor of testing saying it was a halakhic obligation. And um, uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law, Rabbi Tendler, uh, that's all, it came out very much against testing, arguing that uh, it would just create anxiety and lead to discrimination in Shiduchim. And for 22 years, he actually was quoted and requoted as, uh, as prohibiting testing, and co even calling it the tyranny of knowledge. And so, um, Slowly, as because this new information had emerged that the that the results of testing could be used to take steps to significantly uh, prolong a woman's life, and that this information wasn't just getting information for the sake of information, but there was a practical, significant pikuach nefesh benefit to it. I um, started to approach Postgim and ask them what their thoughts were on testing, summarizing the relevant medical information, and then asking Bichvoda Rav, uh, based on this new, this new information that testing allows women to take steps to dramatically improve their chances of survival, is testing halakhically permitted? Uh, and so... One by one, uh, they started to give me answers. Rav Avram Steinberg, uh, the author of Harifuak Halacha and uh, the editor of Encyclopedia Talmudit. So he felt that because there's an up to, that women who carry the mutation have an up to 70% chance of developing cancer during their lifetimes, that uh, testing fell under the mitzvah of anishmartem, the obligation to protect one, to, to uh, 
protect one's health and that there was no place to, and, and that this uh, testing could not constitute uh, a violation of the prohibition against soothsaying because there, the danger uh, was known and already exists in her. And that uh, when balancing between the um, risks and benefits of testing, that ultimately pikuach nefesh, the obligation to save a life, uh, over, over, overrode or overrides any of these concerns that women who uh, have a family history had an obligation to undergo testing and that Ashkenazi women in the absence of a family history uh, ought to uh, very strongly consider testing and that someone with a family history actually should undergo testing uh, before having children to enable them to undergo pre-implantation uh, gestational diagnosis and potentially select for embryos that don't carry the mutation. He also turned to Rev Yuval Sherlow, who um, uh, said that if an Ashkenazi woman asked me if she should undergo BRCA testing, I would tell her to run to do so. And Rav uh, Shlomo Abiner, who uh, also felt that testing was a mitzvah for all Ashkenazi women, regardless of family history. And so armed with this um, very uh, this very strong endorsement by these rabbinic figures, I then turned to Rabbi Tendler, who again, as I said, for 22 years had strongly opposed the RCA testing. Uh, and to my surprise, he said that he was in full support of BRCA testing for all Jewish women, not just Ashkenazi women. He felt that it was a chivdoraita, a biblical obligation, an absolute halachic requirement, since we have the means to respond to a positive test. When I asked him from what age, he said, once you're married, if you're old enough to marry, you're old enough to undergo BRCA testing. And then I asked him, can anyone refuse testing? And he said, no, no one has the right to refuse BRCA testing. So after I heard this, uh, I decided I had to undergo testing. Baruch Hashem, Chana, I don't have a family history of cancer. My sister is healthy. My brothers are healthy. My parents have not had cancer, thank God. Um, and nevertheless, I decided to undergo testing because who can argue with a Chiyav Doraita? So after I had spoken to him, on Saturday night, I turned on my computer, I found a genetic testing company and filled out some demographic information. The next day they called me up. Uh, I think the genetic counselor called me up, asked a few more questions. And then Monday morning, a nurse came to my house to draw my blood. I put the vial in my refrigerator. Four o'clock, a courier came to take the vial to the company. And six weeks later, I got my results which thank God were negative. Um, but today it's much sim more simple than that in Israel. Uh, now, since January, 2020, it is part of the Sal HaBriyut. It's part of the basket of health services. And so an Ashkenazi woman, uh, whether she is partially Ashkenazi or fully Ashkenazi, uh, merely needs to go to her family doctor and ask for a hafnaya, a referral, and uh, she can go get tested. She just she goes to any macabre, any kupa lab, any uh, any um, uh, health fund lab to have the testing, and will receive the results uh, fairly quickly afterwards. And then, should she test positive, uh, she can meet with a genetic counselor and the appropriate physicians to figure out what steps to take next. But now it's really it's available to all Ashkenazi women. 
Uh, in our evening uh, of Knowledge of Power through Eden, I interviewed uh, a prominent medical oncologist in Yerushalayim who explained that uh, very often women will turn to uh, their family doctor and ask for the test. And the doctor will say, no, you're not eligible for it uh, and turn her away. And that's not true. Every woman is eligible. And in fact, um, every Ashkenazi woman is eligible, partial or full, and merely need to ask for it and advocate for it. Which leads to the question, what about Sephardi women? Uh, and right now it is not available for all Sephardi women. Uh, if you have, if you might, if you suspect that you are, are in a population that is at higher risk, uh, you should ask, turn to a genetic counselor, but we just don't know enough about which Sephardi populations uh, are at higher risk of carrying the mutation. And so the recommendations for them, for, for Sephardi women are, are less clear at this point in time. So since we've talked about uh, the approach of the post scheme to BRCA testing, and when we were discussing the age, the optimal age to test, you mentioned 25 to 30 as the optimal age, and you also mentioned the topic of marriage and shiduchim. And I'm curious to know, uh, we talk about this, the testing process, giving somebody information that's their, their right to have. Um, am I obligated to share this information once I have it? Is there a halachic opinion on that if I'm um, planning on getting married or um, going on shiduch, shiduchim? Am I obligated to share this information? Or even if I'm not in a dating process, is it information that I'm obligated to share with my family, even if I don't want to? That is such a difficult question, Hannah. Um, there are really two parts to the question, which is, am I obligated to share that information with others who might not be at risk themselves? And am I obligated to share that information with others who, who potentially now have a higher risk because I tested positive? So let's start with the first question. Uh, am I obligated to share that information with others who may not be at increased risk? And that is such a difficult question when it comes to shiduchim. Uh, do, I, do I need to disclose? If I do need to disclose, at what point? Do I disclose when the shadchan calls? Do I disclose before the first date? Do I disclose after the second date, the third date? When things to begin to intensify? Do I disclose before we're engaged, after we're engaged, after we're married? If I wait until after we're married, are, are the, are the kedushin, is, is the marriage valid? Um, and so these are huge questions which postgim uh, will need to deal with. The general recommendation is that that one should disclose, uh, and when when begins to become serious, there was uh, interestingly uh, that interestingly and, and timely uh, this question is uh, this week. Uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky uh, passed away. The Gadol Hador who unfortunately uh, was lost this week to the world. And he was asked uh, a, a very difficult question. Uh, a, a young man and woman who were dating, uh, very briefly, they had just uh, met each other a few times. And the family, the young girl's mother had died of breast cancer and the boy's family asked her to be tested. Uh, and they claimed they, that it, 
the results of testing didn't matter. They would continue the shidduch even if she tested positive. And the young woman actually did not want to undergo testing. She felt that should she test positive, she would spend her whole life in fear of breast cancer, uh, breast and ovarian cancer, and she couldn't live her life properly. It would just create too much anxiety. And so Rav Konevsky ruled that she did not need to undergo testing. Uh, needless to say, the shidduch didn't, it, it dissolved, it didn't last. But a, a policy of testing the entire Ashkenazi population really requires us to think collectively as a community, as a society, of how to address uh, uh, confidentiality issues, when we need to disclose, uh, and, and, in, in, and the importance of educating the community on what it means to carry the mutation uh, and, and the steps that are available to reduce the risks of carrying the mutation. And so it really is a call to action to us uh, as a society to figure out how, how to manage these issues that are most certainly going to arise once we're screening the entire Ashkenazi population. In terms of testing, uh, who do I need to tell when I test positive uh, and, and relatives who might be at increased risk? Do I need to tell my sister? Do I need to tell my mother? Do I need to tell my children? Uh, this is a very difficult question. It's a question that was posed to, that, that uh, Rav Yashiv addressed. Uh, and he was asked whether a woman who tested positive needed to disclose her inform this information to her sister. After all, if she tests positive, her sister was also at risk for carrying the mutation. And he ruled that she did not need to disclose the information to her sister because there was only a 50% chance that the sister had also inherited the mutation. And even if she had inherited the mutation, it wasn't 100% that she would develop cancer. And if she developed cancer, there were effective treatments that could potentially cure her. And at the time, he was being asked the question, there were not, there were no, there was no treatment that could 100% guarantee uh, preventing breast cancer if she carried the mutation. And so he said, no, you don't need to disclose. It's quite possible he would rule differently today based on our current information that someone who carries the mutation can take active steps now that will dramatically reduce her chances of developing cancer. If a woman who tests positive ha has, is under no obligation to disclose to her closest relatives, she's, she certainly would be under less obligation to disclose to more distant relatives. Okay. Wow, thank you for explaining that. Um, I'm interested to know, based on your, uh, your research and your exposure to this topic with, uh, and, and to a lot of people who have been dealing with this topic, um, have, how have you found that women um, relate to the advice of their rav, their halachic authority, their rabbi, when it comes to making a decision like this? Do they uh, um, approach it as a medical decision? Do they approach it as um, a halachic decision or some combination of the two? What, what have you found on that? So it's actually surprising um, that women really do want to know what halacha has to say about this topic. There was a study of 500 or more than 500 Orthodox women, uh, predominantly modern Orthodox from the upper, upper Manhattan, uh, who had undergone BRCA testing. And over, 
almost 70% of them had reported that they had turned to a rabbi or a rabbinic authority to discuss uh, their medical decision. And that, um, in, that 50% of them felt that uh, the rabbinic authority that they had consulted did not necessarily have adequate information, adequate medical knowledge to help guide them with the decision. And so this study suggests that yes, women really do want to know what Halacha has to say about the topic, uh, that that is that that uh, they want uh, guidance from a rabbinic authority, and that it's that um, uh, it's important to provide information to help support women uh, who, are, who are facing these decisions, as well as the halachic figures who would be guiding them as well. That's really interesting. That's really interesting because I think a lot of the decisions that that come up, especially in this context that we talk about Merkaz Eden and topics that are important to Merkaz Eden and Jewish women and family, there really is often an overlap between health and medicine and halacha. And uh, I think it's a very interesting topic to see how we try to integrate all of those in our lives. And, uh, and hopefully we'll always be guided by, by, um, by the right people, both in the halachic world and, uh, and in the medical world. Um, it, the point that I did want to just go back to, and that is about uh, men testing for BRCA, because you mentioned that it's not a topic that affects only women. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the topic of men and BRCA testing? So uh, men have unfortunately been ignored uh, in, in this whole conversation. Um, men inherit the mutation with the same frequency as women. Uh, they, um, they, and the mutation puts them at higher risk of developing cancer. As I said, they're at higher risk carriers are at higher risk of developing male breast cancer and prostate cancer. Males, men who inherit the BRCA2 mutation have a up to a 40% risk of developing prostate cancer, which is very high. It's, uh, it's comparable to the risk of developing ovarian cancer in a BRCA2 uh, carrier, sorry, in a BRCA uh, carrier. And um, they're also more likely to develop prostate cancer at a younger age and a more aggressive form of prostate cancer. Uh, and, and people really aren't aware that men, men inherit the mutation with the same frequency and that the mutation puts them at risk. Uh, men who carry the mutation, why, why should men undergo testing? Uh, interestingly, when Matan did its day of BRCA testing uh, in February, 2020, men showed up too. We had husbands and wives who showed up together for testing and, um, and husbands tested A, because they had, both spouses wanted to know that they were negative so that they could tell their children, we do not carry the mutation and perhaps you don't need to undergo testing. Although uh, should there be new mutations that are discovered in the next 20 years, that recommendation could change. There might be a need for testing. But the first reason they tested was that to know that their children didn't carry the mutation. And the second reason to undergo testing was to, to address their own personal risk. Uh, because if they tested positive, they would then begin screening for male breast cancer and screening for prostate cancer with uh, PSAs and prostate examination. There is no public figure like Angelina Jolie, no male equivalent who's undergone testing, who can promote awareness, 
but it, it is a very important area. And the international organizations, you know, medical organizations in the United States recommend BRCA testing for all Ashkenazim, men and women, they do not separate. Today, the Israel Cancer Association recommends for all Ashkenazi women, uh, but I believe with time, the recommendation will likely, please God, extend to men as well. Wow. So you have shared with us so much. Sharon, one topic that you mentioned briefly, but I would like to hear a little more about, is the potential of the BRCA test to cause anxiety in women. And I understand that was the basis for some post-scheme having an issue with it. Can you expand on that topic a little bit? That's a very, very real concern. Uh, just, just how devastating is BRCA testing and how much does it uh, lead to anxiety and, un, and worry? Uh, and, and that was the major, major reason that a post-scheme hesitated to endorse testing. And so we now know today that in fact, uh, testing has a minimal impact on anxiety. We know from women who have family histories of breast cancer that, uh, and undergo BRCA testing, that testing does not significantly increase their anxiety, but they're living with a lot of background anxiety because they have family members who had cancer and they've watched them go through it. And they, are, they probably are living, already living in fear of cancer. And so we didn't know until recently how women without a family history who really hadn't thought much about cancer in their day-to-day -day existence, how they, how they deal with testing. And we now know that women who undergo testing, uh, who test negative, testing seems to have very little impact on their um, emotional health, on their anxiety, but women who test positive do experience a significant increase in anxiety. Uh, certainly in the first year after testing, that anxiety level uh, falls, it, it lessens as they move on to two years after testing. And for women who test positive and undergo prophylactic surgery, their level of anxiety returns to what it was before testing. And so, in women who test negative, in women who test positive, uh, who, who uh, undergo surgery, sur the, the testing seems to ultimately have, little, have very little impact uh, long-term on their overall anxiety level. Uh, we also know that 93% of women, the vast majority of women who undergo PRCA testing are very satisfied with the decision that they made. Uh, we also know that women are interested in testing. In, when testing was offered to Ashkenazi women in Canada in the study that uh, ultimately showed that testing based on family history didn't, didn't identify half of those who carried the mutation, the study was conducted by placing an advertisement in a local newspaper, one single advertisement. And over the course of two weeks after that advertisement appeared, 2,000 women signed up. Testing is very high in Israel. Women who are aware of it, uh, go to get tested. The problem is that women aren't aware. They aren't aware of 
the need for testing, they're not aware of the importance of testing, and they're not aware that uh, testing can be done very easily and simply in Israel uh, by actually by going to see your family doctor and getting the hafnaya, getting a referral for testing. Testing can be a little bit more complicated though in the United States, uh, navigating insurance companies, uh, especially when one does not necessarily have a family history. We also know that women act on this information. One of the arguments that was raised against, against testing was, okay, so a woman tests positive. So the first argument was she tests positive, she's going to be anxious, and we've just caused anxiety. The second argument against testing was, okay, she tests positive, but she's not going to do anything with the information. And we actually know that's not true. We know that um, in the first year after testing positive for the BRCA mutation, all 100% of the women uh, who were studied had gone ahead and had an, M, uh, an MRI of the breast, which they never would have had. And that uh, at two years, 11% had had their breasts removed, they had undergone prophylactic mastectomy. And at two years, 90% had their ovaries removed, they had undergone prophylactic oophorectomy. So this is uh, an important test that allows women to take steps to significantly improve their chances of survival and that women will, will take those steps. Uh, they will do what needs to be done to reduce those chances or at the very least undergo surveillance, which can also have a significant impact uh, on their chances of survival. Wow, thank you. That is so much information that we've covered today. Uh, I definitely feel like I've expanded my understanding on the topic of the BRCA mutation, on the advantages of the testing for the BRCA, uh, some of the hesitations that somebody might have, both halachic and personal, um, but it sounds like it's a tool that's really at our disposal. It seems that it's becoming more and more at our disposal through in Israel through the Salbriut and because people are more aware of it um, and really with life-saving potential. Um, so I really thank you for sharing all that information with us about the, uh, the medical, the halachic, the, the social and emotional elements of these, of these decisions. And it's interesting because I see that, that that comes up repeatedly in topics that we discuss. We talk about medicine and halacha. Um, that's exactly it. Uh, some of the biggest decisions that we need to deal with are not, um, they're not simple. They're multifaceted and they touch on halachic parts of our lives and medical and health and lifestyle and personal and emotional. And uh, so if any, th these decisions are anything but simple um, and definitely have many elements that need to be considered. And the best we can do is to help provide the information, give people that knowledge, give people the awareness, uh, help guide them towards the resources and hope that people are able to find the support system that they need and find the, uh, the guidance that they need um, to help them in the best way possible. Um, I also do want to point out that the Merkaz Eden, the Eden Center, does have a lot of resources on this topic uh, about BRCA and especially about the topic of prophylactic surgery and women who are going through that process and how that might impact elements of their life like mikvah, um, family and the Eden centers also had, like we mentioned earlier on, um, programs that we've done online and in person. So people should feel free to also, uh, turn to the Eden center if they'd like access to some of those resources or to be, uh, provided with further, further information. Um, so Sharon, any words of closing on this topic before we 
before we finish up. I just like to say thank you, Hannah, as always, and to emphasize that uh, we're talking about a simple blood test, one-time test that is um, part of the basket of health services here in Israel, a one-time test that allows a woman to take steps to uh, dramatically improve her life expectancy and take steps that will help her uh, help her children and future generations. Very important. Thank you so much for having this conversation today, Sharon, and to all our listeners, uh, wishing you good health and see you next time. You've been listening to Medical Matters, insights into current issues in health and halacha with Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman and Hannah Evenchen. This podcast is an Ed and Center production. To learn more about our work, check out our website at www.theedandcenter.com.